You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts, Howard Schweitzer and Mark Alderman. Mark and Patrick, good morning. It is Saturday, January 23rd, back in our Back in our regular Saturday spot, and no Caitlin this morning. She's enjoying the warmth in Florida. She's smarter than the three of us, that's for sure. But at Howard, at least the sun is shining. The, Look out the window. It's been a beautiful January, actually. Sun but, is but, shining. Uh, it's been very sunny since Wednesday, actually. Uh, something's going on. So <laughs> let's let's start there, uh, guys. Reflections on. On the inauguration, what a what a week, and what a time! Uh, Mark, you start us coming off. right out of the box with a little plagiarism from our friend Bob Snyder Howard, who is uh, producing this episode. It, we went from black and white to color. It was stunning and and breathtaking and beautiful. And I I'm not sure in the entire history of the republic. You may have to go back to 1800 and Jefferson and Adams for a more stark and and definitive difference between the 45th and 46th presidents. Patrick. Yeah, I thought it was a a beautiful day. Um, I thought the, you know, the inaugural speech was, was very good, struck all the right notes. I, it's always nice in this business to be surprised. And I, did not go into an inaugural uh, ceremony with Joe Biden giving a speech, Kamala Harris getting sworn in as the first female vice president, and performances by Lady Gaga and uh, Garth Brooks. And thinking, J-Lo. Don't forget J-Lo. And, and J-Lo. I did not go wait, into wait. all that thinking that a 23-year-old poet who I had never wait. heard of was going to outshine all of them, uh, but she did, and I felt as moved as I think everyone else did in hearing that poem. It was just spectacular and and it just was really kind of refreshing i i loved it i mean i i love i have a couple of reflections one is everything you guys said um just the beauty of it and the I, i love seeing former presidents of both parties come together up on stage doing stuff together afterwards or or before and i just I love the ceremony and and pageantry of of all that. It's just it, it's, it was moving. Howard uh, just wonderfully produced, just as yeah. a technical merit, like the convention, frankly. Yeah. And this is a, a sidebar, but I don't know why we'd go back <laughs> for right. conventions or inaugurations. This just starting the night before with that absolutely. magnificent ceremony of remembrance, which our colleague Joe Hill had a major hand in producing. It it couldn't have been more moving or compelling had there been the largest crowd ever for an inauguration. No, it was, it was spectacular. I will, I will make one comment on it though. And I'd I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts, Howard, you and I text about this stuff, talk about this stuff sometimes. Jack Schaefer had a column in Politico on the 21st that sort of criticized the press for 
outwardly expressing all the things that we're talking about right now. And I, I did find myself noticing that. And if you are if you are a person who thinks the mainstream press is biased in this country, you got a great display of it on the 20th. And I know that the media, they're people too, uh, but the adulation of every single thing about Joe Biden, I, as a Democrat, I noticed it. And I know that that drives people in the country crazy. Listen, very it does. And somebody at the New York Times got fired over that. <laughs> but this was not about, this was not even about Joe Biden. Right. It was about getting rid of Donald Trump. Right. And I mean, look, I don't like that stuff. I don't like the media bias. We've talked about that on this podcast. But I guess my my dominant feeling was I was I was happy for my kids. Yes, I was, and your country, and and the country, but just happy. <clears throat> I was happy that for that my kids get to see the peaceful transfer of power. I was happy yes. that my kids get like it's. This has been. So anxiety producing this last four years from beginning to the end, from the inaugural address to the goodbye speech at Joint Base Andrews. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. I don't care what policies you're in favor of for everybody. And I had a number of Trump supporters express to me this week that they felt like their anxiety levels went down. The governing by tweet, all the negativity, it's had an impact. And I was just happy that my kids get to see some normalcy, that my 10-year-old son doesn't have to scream at the television every night. Right. Temperature comes, comes way down. And I almost felt like, you know, then they're just, I felt like it was just plug and play and, it was almost like the last four years never happened. Like right. Biden is governing. Well, and it, it doesn't even feel like there's a break-in period. There, there's just it's just surreal. It's like the last four years were Yeah, I think I think our part of that is because both thematically and, and visually it was a continuation of the Obama-Biden tradition more than, than administration itself. And other than Mike Pence, who, who gets points for being there, other than Mike Pence, it, it was as though we went seamlessly from January 2016 to January or 2017, yeah. rather. And Mark, I don't think that even has to do with Obama, Biden. I just think it has to do with normal and abnormal. And this last four well, years is abnormal, undemocratic, crazy, crazy. And I think well, it's I think it's nor I think it could have just as easily been George W. Bush and it would have been yeah fair enough. normal. Yeah. It, it was and then that was to me the point of seeing all of them on the stage together. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I thought also so, anyway. by you know, by the end of the last four years, America and and I I'm absolutely an American in this respect. We were numb. We had we had just simply become numb 
with so much misbehavior. We had normalized criminality until the insurrection. I think the insurrection, when historians write about this period, is going to be seen as as a line in the sand when when the country decided that we're we're done. We're done with that. Well, Mark, Maybe Lindsey Graham isn't, but I I I thought that that having happened only two weeks earlier, just again contrast, just the starkest right. imaginable contrast. No, for sure. I'm gonna push back. It on was one the thing same building, the same right. building. Yeah, listen, that was that was a stark. You know, kind of just thinking about what happened on the on visual. the sixth, and then what? Yeah, the visual. Better than better than that, even to me, just reflecting on the last couple of weeks, is the fact that that happened on the afternoon of January sixth, and that night Congress reconvened and did their constitutional right. duty. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Right. It's, it's yeah. you know, it's the juxtaposition. By the way, I was super nervous. That was the other dominant emotion for me throughout the the ceremony was I was I was nervous that something bad was going to happen. Just wanted to get it over kind of just and just yeah, get through it and yeah. 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 Stay no, down it, below yeah. that bulletproof glass and and I I I was I was nervous but Mark the one thing I'm going to push back on is I, I don't think it was normalizing criminality. I mean I understand why you're saying why you're saying that. And there certainly was some criminality. But I think it was normalizing disinformation. It was normalizing lies. Well, and yeah. But that, not everything that we normalized was criminal. Some of it was. Yeah. But well, you're right. It, it started was, on <clears throat> January 20th, 2016, 2017, when he talked about the stupid size of his crowd. And it was all downhill from there as far as truth and lies. And the lies undercut democracy. They undercut faith yep. in government. Yep. And it's it's a it's a new day. Well, and, new and, day. and we will find out. Uh, I hope I am not overemphasizing the pivot and the line in the sand of January sixth. But I, the behavior of Trump and and his crowd since the election hit a historic and and I think treasonous yeah. low. And I, you would never wish that on your country, obviously. But the way in which it all unfolded, I think gives us and Biden a, a better shot at, at pulling this thing back together than, than we might have had had there been a, a normal reaction to the election. Yeah. Much more significant than that, though, to me is, I mean, look, we're going to be talking about that for a hundred years. Oh, Hopefully yeah. that's the worst thing that happens. Like, yeah, I don't think we're no question really beyond this yet, Yeah, but um, <clears throat> it is uh, the, it, Donald Trump isn't in office anymore. He's out of office. And I, you know, I think, He's in Florida with uh, Caitlin, right? Man, and not having that Twitter account, not him not being able to kind of live blog the whole thing in real time, it's kind of unbelievable. I, I feel like I haven't heard from him because <laughs> yeah. you don't see it every day. I know. Yeah. Although yeah. time will tell whether that was oh, yeah. good or bad. 
because well, I mean, yes, we all have enjoyed the last couple of weeks <laughs> not having to be bombarded again. I think people on both sides, um, but there, there's there is a lot to be reckoned with as far as freedom of speech as it relates to big tech and whether they should have done that or or not. No, it's problematic. Uh, Twitter itself, Jack Dorsey tweeted, of course, (laughs) that he was conflicted about the precedent that that was being set. But speaking of free speech, we're going to have a we're going to have a seminar in constitutional law in the impeachment trial with the constitutionality of the trial at all, with the constitutionality of inciting a revolution. It, there's yeah. some public civic education and engagement that, that isn't done yet with that trial looming. On a, Patrick, on a, in, in terms of what the right thing to do is, I am totally in favor of holding that trial. In terms of moving past the last four years, the last thing I want to start out the next four years with is litigating the last four years. It has to be done. Yeah. But how do you think Biden and the Democrats navigate that? I think I'm sure Biden is conflicted uh, just in terms of knowing that it's going to hinder the start to the administration a little more than he would like. I I just think to your point, uh, I've read all the constitutional back and forth and, you know, I I think there's a lot of people who are making, uh, interesting points. The reality is there's going to be a trial. I think both sides for the most part would like to see it resolved, uh, quickly, uh, so we can move on to the business of, of the country. And my personal view is, they are, they are, it is about acts that happen while he's in office. And, and I, I think it should go forward and uh, it's unfortunate. This is how we have to start, but I don't think you can just ignore it. It's good that it was delayed a couple yeah. of weeks. Yeah, I totally agree. And we, we've heard that now that the articles will get sent <laughs> over on Monday um, and hopefully they can, you know, what'll, I think we'll all be watching is just how many votes there are. Uh, for removal. I think that will be really interesting to see. My, I tend to think that the longer it goes, the farther we get away from the act, the easier, you know, we just have such short attention spans uh, in this day and age that I, I think that, you know, there will be some people who maybe were thinking about it and it'll just be easier not to do it. I think that's fair, Patrick. I think it's quite a commentary at the speed with which events and thought move in in the 21st century, that two weeks may be long enough for people right. to forget that right. they were hiding under their desks yeah. because a mob incited by the then president was trying to find them, to hang them. But But I think two weeks is a long time in the 21st century. And, and you know, we will again, see the counter to that is that over the next two weeks, more evidence will come out about how organized and premeditated this was. Yes. Yeah. And, and we'll see. I'm with you. I doubt we get to 17, Howard. I know you don't think we get there. I, I, I doubt it. I think you may get seven, eight, nine. You may get halfway there. I hope we do, but I doubt we do. Yeah. I hope I, we do, but I doubt we do. 
The um, but but again, the most significant thing is just the fact that he's no longer in office. Yep. And you know, anybody who's served in government at a high level, it, <laughs> it sounds kind of silly to say it, but you're you're in office one day and you got all this power and everybody's coming to you and everybody wants your attention and then you leave and <laughs> you're just another person you know, out trying to make a living and Jim Jim Florio the former governor of New Jersey congressman uh, author of the clean air act among other things once said to me after he'd been defeated for uh, re-election he said he knew that he had uh, that he had left office when he got in the back seat of his car and it didn't move. <laughs> right. <laughs> and whether you're Jim Florio, Donald Trump, or Howard Schweitzer having been in government, once you're no longer there, you're no longer there. You no longer have that power. And people no longer, you know, salute you and literally and figuratively. And, and that's <laughs> the most fundamental thing about, about um you know the, i think him not being there whatever happens in this trial like to me that only matters in terms of well, him holding future office and yeah and you have you have different types of people that are and, you have different types of people to feel differently about this who have been presidents you know i think you had just to give some examples i think president george w bush and president obama were perfectly happy uh to be done <laughs> when their when their two right. terms were over, Bill Clinton would have been president for the rest of his life if he right. could have been. Uh, and he left under a cloud, which by what we're talking about now seems minuscule uh, over a, a controversial pardon. But he was, you know, toxic uh, after he left office and was just sitting in his home in New York. Hillary was in the Senate and he, he didn't have anything to do. And, and, you know, no one really wanted him around. And but he Bill Clinton and Donald Trump are those type of people that they feed off of attention and and stuff like that. So this is like torture for these type of people who want to be in the in the middle of all of it. Yeah. 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 Fair enough. So guys, I have a question to throw in here. Who other than Donald Trump, the most consequential figure, the most consequential person in the last four years. And I'll, I'll go first. You go first. I'll go first so you guys can think. John Roberts. To me, I literally think he saved the Republic on a lot of levels. And that was seeing him up there swearing in Biden, to me, was another just so um, moving and emotional aspect of, of inauguration. Um, you know, the judiciary really saved the Republic. Um, but, but Roberts, um, his consequential decisions to side with the liberal wing of the court to keep his statements about the actions of, of Trump, um, and the importance of the judiciary, I, I, I think when we, in, in 50 years or 100 years, when we're looking back on this period in American <laughs> history, I think people are going to say that the judiciary in, and, and really John Roberts um, maintained a sense of, you know, what, what normalcy there was left to maintain. 
And I, I was just, I just found myself enormously appreciative of, of him um, and what he's done over the last four years. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's it's going to be hard to think of someone uh, to top. <laughs> I know that, I put you guys on the spot. Yeah, no, but you're absolutely right, and and particularly his uh, his protection and preservation of institutions, and his belief that that you know we need to make sure that government and the courts are functionally properly and not being overly politicized. I, I couldn't agree more, Howard. I will give a hat tip to Mark. The only other person I can think of uh, would be Joe Biden. And just to kind of bring it full circle, you know, Mark wrote a piece in Politico that uh, four years ago on Martin Luther King Day, uh, and and we all got to reread it, uh, where he said, Joe Biden's really the person who is going to save us from Donald Trump in four years. And I found myself watching the inauguration, you know, my wife and my daughter are watching Kamala Harris get sworn in as the first woman vice president. I'm watching myself, you know, I'm a devout Catholic, Irish American, watching Joe Biden get sworn in. And all I could think to myself is, I cannot believe that this, I think, 78-year-old, out of the Democratic Party mainstream guy is who is getting sworn in. Because for so long, for me, it has just felt like the energy and everything in the party is going away from the Joe Bidens of the world and that they're kind of relics in the party. So to see that he was able to accomplish this politically, uh, I I just found extraordinary uh, watching him get sworn in. I'm not gonna compete with John Roberts and Joe Biden. (laughs) I I vote for uh, I wouldn't say this, but given the significance of the last two weeks, I think Mike Pence, did well, what he had to do when he had to do it when it when it actually mattered and look I've, I've never been on the trump train i you know the people that i worked in the bush administration with would never like absolutely would not work for the trump administration um i was on the phone this week with somebody and they were talking about you know, I'm really a George W. Bush Republican. And I said, well, that effectively makes you a Democrat. Um, I mean, it, yeah, I, you know, I, but I think Pence stepped up. Well, now I'm going to have to <laughs> inject uh, a few thoughts here if we're nominating Mike Pence. But I, I think Howard John Roberts and uh, John Roberts as the, uh, the, symbol of the independent judiciary over the last four years, clearly everything you said, I think will will literally go down in history as having been the the single most consequential factor in in saving the system from from Trump. In the last two weeks, I, I said it earlier about Pence attending the inauguration, but going back to Pence presiding over the vote to accept the electoral college count, I, I give Mike Pence enormous points for actually standing up in what turned out to be a life-threatening situation. However, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put in the last two years, I'm... I'm casting a vote, uh, and uh, you can yell at me as soon as I'm done, Howard, but let me finish, for Nancy Pelosi also. In the last two years, as Speaker of the House, 
She has played an, an enormously important, not just political role, Patrick, in holding the party together and in, in being the, the loyal opposition, but an institutional role. She reasserted the institutional, constitutional prerogative and role of Congress. And, and that, too, was part of the glue that held this thing together. I, I would agree with you. But but you don't like she, <laughs> no 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 I I think she deserves a ton of credit for but I was looking also for another person I, uh, another older person just to complete right. the no I I think that I, I what, think she's what a done, world where Joe Biden and John Roberts and Nancy Pelosi saved the country what a world I mean that's what it should be that's yeah. yeah. That's what it should be like three. I mean, you may like or dislike Nancy Pelosi and her policies, but she's a she's not a zealot or I mean, she's a she's a normal person. <laughs> like all right. we need is normalcy. That's the defining characteristic that I think the is the comparative character trait to Donald Trump. I think she tarnished her legacy a bit in the election because you had a whole slew of moderate Democrats that didn't have to lose, that lost because she wouldn't do a deal because she overplayed her hand. And I think that yeah, I, I think that she, tarnishes her legacy. And I think she's got everybody talks. Everybody's talking about the Senate. And, and this is a good pivot point. Everybody's talking about the Senate. I don't think the Senate's where the action's going to be. I think it's going to be in the House. And she has an incredibly <laughs> difficult job ahead of her. You know, people well, think start, it's... start with the fact she has four votes. Right. People <laughs> yeah. think it's going to be easy to do budget reconciliation, which is a majority-only... Um, majority rules way of legislating on the Senate side. That's, of course, the way that the House already legislates. But good luck, good luck getting the squad to go along with the problem solvers in the House. I, I think it's going to be enormously difficult. And the Senate isn't as radical an institution as the House. And that's just a, that's a numbers thing as far as the diversity of viewpoints. But I, I think it's going to be very difficult to govern the House, Patrick. I got I do have to push back a little, though, on why we lost those moderate Democratic seats. And every election, there's a million different factors. You can never really pin it on one thing. But I don't think those two Georgia Republicans lost because people didn't get $2,000 stimulus checks. And I don't think those moderate Democrats lost because there wasn't a COVID deal. I think they lost because they won their seats in a Democratic midterm that was favorable, and they lost their seats when Donald Trump massively outperformed on the top of the ticket. And and these are these were just tough gerrymandered ten years ago districts. And the, you know, I I just the, if there's a simple answer to me, Trump turned out more vote than anyone thought he would, and that was where we all had a big blind spot to how the how the House races were going to play out. Yeah, I guess that's fair, but. Guys, I've gotten a bunch of questions this week. I got one from a client yesterday um, asking us to, uh, to to 
do a do a webinar for there's it's a trade association and you know do a webinar for our members and explain what's going to happen in the Biden administration what's he really going to get done and by the way Howard the people you're speaking to probably by and large supported the other candidate um, so what is Trump actually going to get done Patrick I mean sorry God. Old habits die hard. Yeah. What is Biden actually going to get done, Patrick? Uh, I think it's going to, you're going to see, we've talked about this before, but I think the tone and the message and the feel is toward working together, finding common ground, resetting. And I think the other side of this is going to be what the administration and Congress actually do. And I think it's going to be as much as they think they can. And I think administratively, a lot of executive orders, a lot of administrative actions. And I think, you know, look at this COVID deal. We're the, the, the a $1.9 trillion, uh, $1.9 billion package. And they are not going to get 60 votes for that in the Senate. It's not going to happen. Uh, we know that today. It's just that the support's not there. So do they trim it down and try and do something for regular order? Or do they try and do it through reconciliation? I, I think they only have one choice if they want to do a COVID bill. And I think, the, and, and so you just start to see how quickly this sort of call for bipartisanship, it is going to very quickly be the Democrats after the way they felt things have gone the last four years, they are not going to just kind of sit by and, and say, let's sing Kumbaya. They're going to say, we may have slim uh, majorities, but we're going to do whatever we can uh, to achieve whatever is politically possible. Again, I, I don't think, I think people are talking about the Senate, but overestimating the importance of the Senate relative to the House. I, I agree um, with that. I, getting I, Joe I don't Manchin that, to I don't, agree with AOC on the priorities in a bill isn't going to be easy. Well, that, that was your original a, question too, Howard. Yeah. And it, it was a good one, which is, the last time we had a 50-50 Senate, I looked this up because I thought it was so interesting. The last time we had a 50-50 Senate, 2001, 20 Democratic senators of the 50 were from states that George W. Bush had won in 2000. In this 50-50 Senate, we have three Democratic senators that are from states that Donald Trump won. So this red state, blue state thing has really, really shown itself in the Senate. In the House, you have more uh you know, Democrats that are going to be in tough races in two years. And so to your kind of point, I think you were making getting a majority in the House, you're going to be asking, you know, eight to 15 Democrats who are in really tough races to be putting their entire political future on the line every time you have a tough vote. That's not as much the case in the Senate. So I, I think, Howard, that was kind of the point you were making, that that's going to potentially be tougher. And I agree. But I, I, I think that's all fair comment. But back to the question about what Biden is going to get done. My view is that it is um, an almost all or nothing bet on 100 million vaccines in 100 days. The absolute dominant total eclipse of the sun fact of American life remains the pandemic. He has come out and numerically pledged to end the pandemic with 100 million vaccines in 100 days. And if he can do that, 
I think that he will have established a credibility and a and a bipartisan support that is going to allow him to take on all the rest of the problems if he fails if he fails and if we are 100 days out and this pandemic is still raging I think apart from whether it's the Senate or the House and whatever the power sharing agreement is and, and all the rest, this, this is going to be a severely uh, limited administration for having not hit that, that goal. I, I half agree with you. So, so I agree. He only has to do 50 million? No, 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 no. I, I half agree with your point. I agree with the first part, which is Washington and the bubble and all the reporters yeah, and everyone yeah. is like, what are his legislative accomplishments going to be? I, I truly believe, Mark, to your first point, if he if he manages us out of the vac, out yeah. of the pandemic uh, and gets 100 million bucks, gets that done, uh, that is the number one goal and, and that trumps everything else. But I don't think, to your second part, he's going to have any political capital from that to do bipartisan things. What I think will happen is that the public will reward him. I think that I think that the midterms could be a lot less perilous for Democrats if he just gets restabilizes the country, gets us out of the pandemic and help stabilize the economy. I don't think that ordinary people have a legislative scorecard and judge what laws got passed in the first year. That's how DC grades this stuff. I think get us out of the pandemic, right. stabilize the country, and he will be him and the Democratic Party will be rewarded in the midterms. Yeah. yeah and, part and, of that is passing legislation. Part of that is going big on a stimulus bill and and reinvigorating the economy, but I mean, I agree with everything. I agree with everything you guys are saying, but, you know, to answer our client's question before I do the webinar, you know, he's, look, COVID, I totally agree, Mark, is a, a total eclipse of the sun. And like, it's the, it's not everything. just the number one priority. It's the first 10 priorities and nothing else is a close second. Um. And, and that applies to both the public health and economic aspects of the crisis. But he has uh, constituted his administration with people that have experience that are plug and play. And he's going to walk and chew gum at the same time. And, you know, COVID, you have COVID and the economy, kind of 1A and 1B. Um, um, he is going to push a progressive agenda. You know, I would say, I would say his second priority is normalcy and just a, a facts and tone and everything we've talked about hating about the last four years, um, kind of writing the ship in that regard and taking down the, the rhetoric. And it's actually been, I think a very, very quiet launch. Um, very quiet last couple of days because I think, and, and you know what, if we go a couple of days without thinking about the president of the United States, thank God. Okay. Because yeah. the last four years, you can't go. Well, to just, think just, compare, just compare and, and contrast. You know, Biden has issued Patrick. I've lost count. You and I've been talking about it over 20 executive orders. Yeah. And it'll be 53 by Friday. Yeah. 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 Trump issued one, one, one. Yeah. He issued the travel, the Muslim travel ban, and the country erupted, erupted. Right. 
Here you have 53 executive orders and everybody's just saying, okay, let, let's see what happens right. next. So, but I, but I do think he, if you look, and this is what I'm talking to clients about, because this is the thing that clients need to be paying it. If you're in the C-suite, you need to be paying attention to, he's actually at the regulatory level he is pushing very progressive nominees. Rohit Chopra, for example, an FTC, currently a Federal Trade Commission uh, commissioner. Uh, he's going to nominate to lead the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He's a Warren acolyte. And he is hyper progressive. He's way to the left of Richard Cordray, who was there during the Obama administration. Um, and, and that's where the rubber hits the road. You're gonna see ramped up enforcement against bad actors in the private sector. The, the Trump well, DOJ took it Gary down Gensler and took that down. At the SEC is the same story. And- Yeah, he's I, the same. And, yeah. and so I think you're gonna, I think, <laughs> <laughs> there, there's going to be a lot of progressive agenda um, being carried out where you really can't see it yeah. um, by design. And yeah, absolutely. You need to so, be tuned in. You need to forget about, forget about the headlines, forget. And I, don't buy the head fake. It's the same thing I said during the Trump administration, forget about, the tone at the top, it matters. It makes us all feel a certain way, but you really have to look down and look at who's in what seats and what their agenda is and what their approach to governing is. And there will be a progressive push at that level. I, I just want to drop a footnote to that. Completely agree with that. If you look at the organization chart of the Biden administration, this, by the way, was true of the uh, Biden campaign as well. The deeper down you drill into the org chart, the more progressive the personnel get. And personnel being policy, it is a more moderate administration at the top, starting in the Oval Office, Ron Klain, Steve Rossetti, and Jen O'Malley and the rest. But the deeper you drill down, the more progressive it gets. The only footnote though, Howard, is I think that uh, I think that Joe Biden intends to actually be the president, unlike his predecessor. And I don't think the CFPB is going to adopt a different direction without the White House signing off. Oh, my God. So I could not disagree more. Mark, that's not. And we should pick this up on our next podcast, because having been <laughs> in two agencies, that just isn't how it works. The White House. Hello. Oh, I think we lost him. Good. So I'm I gonna, think the I think I'm the government contradict Howard while he's not. I on think the, the government uh, heard him about to give some secrets and turned his mic <laughs> off. Well, one oh. thing on what Howard said, Mark, I'd be curious for your thought because How Howard brought something up I've been saying a lot, which is just not not wanting to talk about the president every day. I mean, you go on your Twitter feed, your Instagram feed, 
everyone's talking about politics all day long. I would love nothing more than for people to talk more about their families and sports. And 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 just, it is great to be, the civic engagement we saw in this election was fantastic and it was necessary to preserve the Republic. But now, it and people should always be vigilant and stay informed. But I just hope politics <laughs> doesn't become an obsession, like kind of everything, like it's, like it's, uh, it shouldn't be reality TV that you're thinking and talking about all the time. And I need to call the cousin on our IT help desk and get a new battery for my laptop. I, I apologize, but I am going to finish my point. Do it. We already is, overruled you. you the, White House doesn't, <laughs> the, the White House doesn't tell the agencies what to do. That is way, way, way overstated. And that that's and and that's why I always tell people don't don't just watch the headlines because that isn't the way it's not the way it goes. Sometimes they do though, right? I mean, just to be fair, Howard, I agree that it's not like they have total control, but you know, this Medicaid rule that all of us followed uh MFAR, you know, at CMS, administrator wanted to do it. Uh all the political appointees at the agency wanted to do it. Political pressure from the governors told the White House don't do it, and the White House said don't do it, so she didn't do it, right? So I mean, there, there the are examples. very big stuff, and it depends on what's going on in the country and the world, and well, and two, it depends on who's in the Oval Office. But but part of a return to normalcy, I'm just telling you guys, you, having been in a couple of senior roles in government, part of a return to normalcy is the White House not telling the agencies what decisions to make. And there's so many decisions that they make that nobody ever hears about, most decisions. And that's why you really have to drill down. And they're not going to tell Rohit Chopra, Mark, how to run the CFPB. They're not. And, And clients have to, they have to really look at the agencies and not focus on 1600 Pennsylvania. So Mark's trying to formulate a thought, but with my battery, (laughs) my thought is to be continued. I, I grant to be continued. Exactly. The last four years have gone in the Obama administration. It didn't go that way every day, but here you have the most experienced white house staff, maybe in the history of the Republic, certainly in in recent administrations, and they are not going to micromanage. Ron Klain isn't going to be editing the punctuation in CFPB proposals. But but I, I disagree that there isn't going to be a more directional involvement by the White House and and to be continued. Well, let's let's pick that up on our next next week because I think for if our clients have listened to us wax poetic for the last 45 minutes or however long we've been on it. They're not going to know what to think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that that uh this is really the you know we've talked about a lot of heady stuff, but this is really what matters from a from a client perspective, from a corporate perspective, um, it's what what are you paying attention to? And so let's pick it up next week, guys. What a week! I'm glad we got to got to talk it all out, and uh, have a great weekend. And we'll be back next week. 
Thanks, guys. Good enough. See you guys. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing Podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.